0: Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13, it says, Then they that is the Sanhedrin sent to him, that is Jesus, some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. When they had come, they said to him, teacher. We know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it and he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. In chapter 12, it began with a parable and now he is going to answer some questions. First about taxes, later about the resurrection. The beginning of the chapter illustration has given way to confrontation. First about tribute in verses 13 through 17, later about marriage and the resurrection in verses 18 through 27, and still later about what constitutes the greatest commandment in verses 28 through 34. And you'll recall that in our passage, in this text, we find Jesus in the last week of his earthly life. And now we are counting down because Sunday has gone by and Tuesday has gone by and Wednesday has gone by. And before Friday evening, before the sun sets, he'll be dead. The religious leaders continue their examination of Jesus They've already made a commitment to reject Jesus, but now they need an excuse to kill him. And when Jesus answers their questions, he in effect will reveal the horrible condition of their heart. The parable of the wicked vine dressers reveals their selfishness in verses 1 through 12. Now Jesus reveals their hypocrisy in verses 13 through 17. Still later in the chapter, he will add to the list ignorance in verses 18 through 27, and superficiality or shallowness in verses 28 through 40. But we'll go right to it. The political views in the first century. Look again in verse 13. It says, then when they sent to him some of the Pharisees, we know from another gospel that it was the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. The Sanhedrin was the ruling body of the Jews, and they sent a delegation of Pharisees and Herodians to question him and Mark. Reveals their motive, note, to catch him in his words, that is to trip Jesus up. And as you can imagine, like in any political cycle, newscasts and people will come and examine the candidates, not for the purpose of getting information, but for the purpose of trying to humiliate them. The religious leaders devise a question intended to reveal a person's views on taxes and citizenship within the state. They're going to ask, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? A yes answer will discredit Jesus with the people who are opposed to paying the taxes to a foreign conqueror, which is Rome. A no answer will provide ammunition for his arrest, insurrection, Accusation of treason opposing the law and threatening a revolt and so the religious leaders are thinking this is hog We keep kosher heaven Because no matter what he says he's going to be in trouble But jesus is the messiah Jesus is the son of god Jesus is the second person of the trinity Jesus is smarter, not only than every single person who happens to be in the Temple Mount, but if you took the sum and the substance of all of human wisdom and somehow could gather it all together, Jesus could say, with half my brain tied behind my back, just to make it fair. (laughs) Jesus is going to see through their wicked plot. And he's going to use the occasion as an opportunity to teach a lesson. And the lesson is going to be a lesson about citizenship. You'll remember that the religious Jews believed citizenship was a matter of being loyal to God. And there's not a problem with having the attitude and the idea that being loyal to God is, is a bad thing. It's a good thing. But remember, their loyalty had actually shifted from the God of the Bible and the, the God that's revealed in the Bible to a loyalty that, in, that actually was was way more involving religion than a right relationship with God. And so when they ask the question, they understand that they are going to try to trip Jesus up. But the lesson that Jesus wants to make concerns authority and who we will submit to. Jesus will shock the listener by declaring that there's an earthly citizenship to which some things are given and there is a heavenly citizenship to which some things are given. And this might be difficult for some people to comprehend, but the reality is for the Christian, you are seated in heavenly places. Jesus Christ is both King and and Lord. But guess what? We also have a citizenship here on the earth. Some of you understand the concept of dual citizenship. If your parents were born in a foreign country, sometimes that country will extend citizenship to you. And with citizenship comes certain rights and privileges that don't belong to non-citizens. We're given a clue. About the circumstances by the unlikely union of the two political groups, which are violently opposed to one another, the Pharisees and the Herodians, and even the two, even though these two have very different political philosophies, they will come together in a united opposition in order to try to deal with their common enemy, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Pharisees were the religious Jews who believed that religion should be the deciding factor when decisions are made politically. Now, now you'll notice that I use the term religion. I, I used it on purpose. I didn't use the term the God of the Bible and the revelation of that God because their loyalties clearly weren't to the God of the Bible and the revelation of that God. In their view, like I said, political machinations were to be subordinate to the religious authorities. And there are religious states that exist even to this day in Muslim countries where they practice Sharia law, but also in communist countries. And you might think, well, they're not religious. Oh, yes, they are. Communists have a form of religion. And their religion is they have an idea about God. They have an idea about what the problem of man is. They have an idea of what the solution is. And in their idea, the solution is always the state. The state and all other power and authority were to be subject to religious rule according to the Pharisees. And for that reason, they were strongly opposed to paying taxes to a foreign king. Paying taxes to a secular government was in their mind an infringement and an offense against God. The Herodians believed that the state was supreme. The Herodians were not so much a religious party as a political party, but they had religious leanings. In what way? The Herodians supported the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the ruling members of the Sanhedrin who were the high priests. And remember, the Sanhedrins believed in the first five books of the Bible, but they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't really believe in heaven. They didn't really believe in hell. They didn't really believe in a resurrection. In other words, these were culturally religious people who were deeply connected to their religious past. But they were quite disconnected with the spiritual roots. The Herodians had their loyalty and allegiance to the Herods. To the king of Galilee, to the king that that, uh, that surrounded to the north and the south and the east and west, the offspring of Herod the Great, they were supportive of Rome, compromising whenever necessary to preserve their power, their influence, and some compromises were so severe that they consented to pagan temples and pagan worship centers. Religiously, their loyalties and affections, like I said, were with the Sadducees, who in turn gave their loyalties to Rome in order to maintain the religious position of power, control, prestige, wealth building, and wealth preservation. So the Herodians, in effect, viewed all messianic claims with deep suspicion. Not for theological reasons, but for economic and political reasons. Because anyone and their brother could come up and claim to be the Messiah. And for the Sadducees, those claims would take the affections and the loyalties of the people and their money away from the Sadducees and the compromises that were being made. So now I want you to imagine the scene. Pharisees. Religion is supreme. Herodian. Herodian. The state is supreme. The Pharisees despise Roman rule and Roman government and Roman taxes. The Herodian accommodates Roman rule, Roman government, and Roman taxes so that they can have their fair share of the pie. And these two deeply divided groups come together to oppose their bitter enemy, Jesus. And so the trap is set. Look at verse 14. When they had come, they said to him, teacher, we know that you're true, that you care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, in the temple and on the temple mount, on the surface, the question might seem safe. It might even seem innocent. But the answer could be dangerous. And remember, they're expecting an answer that will antagonize, divide and alienate. When they say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? The specific tax that they have in mind was called a poll tax. It was a tax that was paid by everyone between the ages of 12 to 65. The poll tax was a headcount tax. In other words, it amounted to about a day's wage in their economy and their time. The poll tax was an existence tax. The, The existence tax was you live in Caesar's world. The air that you're breathing, that's Caesar's air. The food that you eat, it's Caesar's food. In their way of thinking, everything belonged to Caesar, including you. And as a tribute to Caesar, as an acknowledgement that you were living in his world, you were to make the small donation of one three hundred and sixtieth of your income. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wow. Wow. If I only had to pay one three hundred and sixtieth of my income, that's the guy I want to vote for. But there were two other taxes that were imposed upon the Jew by the Roman people. There was a ground tax which constituted one tenth of all of the grain and one fifth of the wine and the fruit that was produced. So if you produced grain, one out of every barley stock one out of every ten would go to the government. There was an, and two or one-fifth of the wine and the fruit that was produced. So we're looking at one-tenth of the grain, one-twentieth, uh, if you will, of the wine and the fruit. And then there was a third tax. It was an income tax. And the income tax amounted to what you and I would call a flat tax. About 1% of your total income had to be given to the government. Now all of a sudden you're starting to do the math. One tenth of, of my business. Um, one day of my life. One percent of the total. I'm voting for that guy. Because think about the world in which we live. If a government says, I want 20% of your total income, I want 30% of your total income, I want 40% of your income, I want 60% of your income, I want 90% of your income, I want all of your income. A government that says, I want all of your income. What claim are they making? That they're absolute power. That they're in control. And so, if Jesus says, pay your taxes... He's seen as a Roman stooge and a Jewish traitor. If he says, don't pay your taxes, the religious authorities will report him to the Roman officials for an ancient version of failing to file your taxes. This is going to result in accusation, insurrection, rebellion, and in the minds of those who are posing the question, a Roman crucifixion. How deliciously evil is that? It's bad enough that it's evil, but their evil is camouflaged in flattery. Look what it says. We know that you're true. We know that you don't care about anyone. You're no respecter of persons. We know that you teach the way of God and truth, unless, of course, it disagrees with me. The religious leaders start to present the moral symptoms of selfish ambition, intrigue, and compromise. Now, I want you to, again, see the picture. The Pharisees hate The Herodians, the Pharisees believed that the Herodians were no better than the doomed Gentiles headed for hell, yet they will work with the Herodians. If it means trapping Jesus, if it means making Jesus disappear, their motive, selfish ambition, they feared the loss of their position, they fear the loss of influence, power, wealth. And so now we know why the religious leaders fear and hate him and the depth of sin and selfish ambition is exacerbated by the so-called moral purity of the religious integrity of the so-called religious leaders, because here's what you would expect. You're in the temple mount with the fair- Pharisees and the Herodians, you expect religious leaders to act with integrity. You expect political candidates to act with the highest degree of personal integrity, transparency, truth and honor. Except, of course, everywhere in the world when it comes to politics. It's a shame, isn't it? Because integrity, transparency, truth, and honor need to be the characteristics that mark our candidates, don't they? What if I told you that maybe it's time that we insisted on candidates that we could vote for? Maybe it's time that personal integrity and transparency and truth and honor become the basis whereby you make a choice about who you're going to vote for or who who you're not going to vote for. Now, I want you to think about what's going on here, even in the question. What is their real desire? What in the deepest part of their hearts, if you could go into the group and you could overhear the circumstances of the speech that's taking inside of their heart, what do they really want? What do they really want? What they really want is they want to put an innocent man to death. They're not really interested in the answer to this question. What they want to do is kill Jesus and make him go away. And in John chapter five, verse forty four, it says, how can you believe? Jesus says. Who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the holy God. And so it becomes very, very difficult even for the person who comes to church or the person who's making an inquiry into whether or not what am I supposed to believe? And how could I possibly believe it if in your heart you're trying to find a reason to once more pretend that what Jesus says doesn't really matter? And for the person who lives for this world and the person who lives for the power and the pleasure and the prestige of this world, who's willing to sleep in the same bed with the one who will protect that power and protect that security, they w- they're willing to make whatever concession, whatever compromise, engage in whatever hypocrisy is necessary to make Jesus go away. And the deception leads to flattery. The deception is evident by two facts. Number one, the Pharisees refuse to go to Jesus alone. They're bringing the disciples with the Herodians and the disciples are learners, students, and the Herodians are along for the ride to give credibility to the appearance that this might be an innocent bunch of kids looking for an honest answer to a simple question. But it's an ambush. And it's the lowest form of ambush because it's cloaked in the deceit and the robes of flattery. And you'll notice that in the flattery, everything that this that the text says is true. Is Jesus the master? That's true. Jesus, you're the master. Is Jesus the teacher? Yeah. Is Jesus from God? Yes. Does Jesus teach the way of truth? Yes. Does the wicked opinions of human beings matter to him at all? Not even one bit. Wickedness and selfishness and evil. Do you suppose those things influence Jesus? Do you think Jesus shows partiality or favoritism? The answer is no. Some people live in a world where they would like to characterize Jesus as being a hard-hearted conservative or a bleeding-heart liberal. It never occurs to them that Jesus is not a hard-hearted conservative and that Jesus is not a, a bleeding-heart liberal, that Jesus is a broken-hearted savior. It may come as a shock and a surprise to you, but Jesus's political loyalties and ambitions aren't the most important thing at the top of his list because he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords and he will rule forever and ever. The problem. The flatterers don't believe a single word. What they're professing about Jesus comes from a very dark place. It comes from a very evil place. It comes from a very wicked place. You see, not everyone who has a question about Jesus has a question that comes from a pure place. Or a curious place. Sometimes it comes from a place where people want to find yet one more excuse to deny him, one more excuse to reject him, one more excuse not to believe him. Deception is injurious To the things that are beautiful and strong and true. And if you think that human wickedness and human deceit and human hypocrisy doesn't have an effect on the way that we really live our lives, then you've never taken a good look around you. Deception does have the ability to injure that which is beautiful and that which is strong and that which is true. But I'm here to tell you that it can't hurt forever. Because Jesus will come back to life. The writer of Proverbs in chapter 12, verse 3 says, A man shall not be established by the wickedness, but rather the root of his righteousness shall not be moved. And in Proverbs 29, 5, it says, A man that flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. As an interesting side note, If you look at verse 14, And you look at the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? The Pharisees themselves, if cornered and put on a lie detector, would have to honestly answer the question. No. So imagine you're there talking to the Pharisees and go Pharisees. What's your answer to the question? No. Herodians, what's your answer to the question? What would the Herodians have to honestly answer? Yes. So there is the group right in front of them who are embracing their own trap standing there. They think that they have Jesus trapped. And in verse 15, look what it says. Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it in both Matthew chapter 22, verse 18, and in Luke chapter 20, verse 33, they give us insight into this particular passage. As a matter of fact, in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, they use three different verbs and three different nouns for knowing their hypocrisy. As a matter of fact, Matthew uses the word. Ponaria, Luke uses the word Panagoria, Mark uses the word Hypocresis. Why is all of that important? Again, a very famous uh, Greek scholar and Bible teacher writes malice, Ponaria malice lay at the root of their conduct. Unscrupulous cunning, Panorgoria, supplied them with the means of seeking their end, whilst they sought to screen themselves under the pretense, hypo- hypocrisis, of a desire for guidance and an admiration of fearless truthfulness and the verbs. Mark uses idos, a form of the verb oida, which means to know intuitively. Matthew uses gnosis or the aorist of ginosko, know by experience or experimentation. Luke uses katanosis, the verb kataneo, which means to notice or observe. Again, sweet comments. The Lord detected their true character intuitively, Idos. He knew it by experience, Gnosis. He perceived it by tokens which he did not, which did not escape his observation, Catanosis. He adds, thus each evangelist contributes to the completeness of the picture, but each, each person also gives us a peek inside of their heart about what their attitude really was. Not just about being citizens in the world and citizens about heaven, about the circumstances of their heart that would bring them to a place where they play a game with Jesus in order to trap him, in order to kill him. And that's a dangerous game. It's a game that human beings on our planet play every single day. Because they question the Bible and they question Jesus. And don't get me wrong, I'm not opposed to questioning the Bible and I'm not opposed to questioning Jesus because I've had questions about the Bible and I've I've had questions about Jesus. But if your questions are such where I am looking for an excuse not to believe the Bible, I'm looking for an excuse not to trust the Savior. Then you're already going from a condition A painful condition of the heart that could land you in big, big trouble. Jesus points out that life in the state isn't about the presence or the absence of money. Look at the text again in verse 15. Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius. You know what's interesting about that? This is the only time in the New Testament Jesus ever asks for money. Ever, And when I mean ever, I mean ever. It tells me a couple of things. Number one, he doesn't have any money. He doesn't have a denarius on him. Jesus, according to the prosperity teacher, should have broke out his bank and pulled out the thousands of denarius that he had stuffed in his robes. But he doesn't have a dime. And the only time he ever asks for money, he's going to use it as an illustration and he's going to give it back. He asked for a denarius. By the way, a denarius was a silver coin, a little bit larger than an American dime. It's about the size of a dime, maybe a little bit smaller depending upon the thickness. But the denarius was a day's wage for a Roman soldier. If I could take you all back in time and we were each given a denarius with your denarius, you could buy a place to sleep. You could buy a loaf of bread and you could buy a Vietnamese noodle bowl at Mulan Landing. No, I'm just kidding. you, You could buy a loaf of bread, you could buy two glasses of wine, and you could buy a place to stay. So you can imagine that's a fairly significant amount of money. The use of Roman money was an admission of Roman authority and Roman power. And so it becomes a point in every culture and every society that when you use whatever the standard is that that is involved with whenever culture or society you happen to be involved in, that usually the person who issues the money is the state and you use some sort of state approved Money system, the person who believes that the state is supreme will automatically give to the state the powers and the attributes of God. And the person who believes that religion is supreme, they don't give the attributes of religion to God. Rather, they take on the attributes themselves because they think that they know exactly what they need. I want you to think about this for just a moment. If you embrace the belief that the state is the supreme authority, then there's no line that the state can't draw, that you have, have to do anything other than comply with the state. But Jesus reminds us that the state isn't the ultimate source of life. Now, the moment that he asks for the money, he is tacitly reminding each and every person who uses the money that they are citizens of this world, whether they want to admit it or not. Congress has the unsolved problem of how to get the people to pay taxes they can't afford for services they don't need. I have no idea why anyone would ever want to run for Congress. (laughs) Just remember, there's no child so bad that he or she can't be used as a tax deduction. (laughs) Why did I even say that? I don't know. Okay, back to the text. The government is ordained by God. Look what it says in verse 16. So they brought it. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Now, Connie, I want you to put Caesar's portrait up there. You see our friend Tiberius right there with Jay Leno's chin and my nose. <laughs> yeah, he's an Italian guy. During this time, there were three basic coinages that were Circulating. From Syria, there was a tetragram, would have, which would have had Caesar's name. There would have been a uh, denarius of Augustus or Tiberius. Tiberius is the earthly ruler. Uh, Augustus was the, the emperor when Jesus was born. But Tiberius is the emperor when when Jesus is conducting his earthly ministry. And when they brought him the coin, it probably would have looked identical to this coin. He would have said... Whose image and inscription is it? And they would say, Caesar. Who mined the silver? Who poured the planchet? Who hired the die engraver? Who, con- everyone there, Herodian and Sadducee and Pharisee alike, everyone, everyone, everyone would have had to admit that this money belonged to Caesar. And what does the inscription say? On some inscriptions like this one that you see up here, it reads, Tiberius Caesar, the divine, Divi, Augustus, son of Augustus. In other words, Tiberius Caesar, the divine Augustus, the, de- the son of the divine Augustus, it is, a, it is a claim of deity. It is an expression of. Of authority. It's his way of saying everything that exists belongs to me. Comes through me. Has its value and remedy through me. And as soon as the Pharisees would have seen this coin, it would have felt like someone was sticking a finger down their throat. (laughs) Because what's written on that coin is blasphemous blasphemous they're ascribing to Tiberius attributes that belong only to God what they should have asked was why are we living in a world where this coin is even circulating Why are they subject to Tiberius? And why are they subject to Rome? Because rebellion and disobedience and unfaithfulness to God had brought them to a place of subjugation and isolation. They should have been ashamed and humbled that their coins had a Gentile dictator on them. And no one could argue that the coin belonged either to the Roman Senate or to the Roman Caesar. And so they know that it isn't their coin and they know that they can't make these coins because counterfeiting was punishable by death and not just any death do you know how what would happen to a counterfeiter in the roman empire they weren't just drowned they weren't just hung their throat wasn't just slit a counterfeiter in the roman empire had to be placed on a stool and covered with pitch and then lit on fire so how many counterfeiters you suppose were hanging out counterfeiting was severely discouraged And so Jesus answers and says to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And what are those things? What are the crass material things that belong to Caesar? William MacDonald writes, their great failure had not been in the first area, but in the second. They paid their Roman taxes, though reluctantly, but they had disregarded the claims of God in their lives. Jesus isn't asking the people to disregard the claims of the secular government. What he's asking them to do is to embrace the claims that are made by God. It's Caesar's coin. When he says render to Caesar, it means give it back. The word translated render is apod. It's in the aorist imperative... One meaning is give it back, return it. We are to give back to the government in taxes for the services we've received. And we're to give back to God what belongs to Him, the human soul. Taxes aren't gifts to the government. They're debts to the government. And Jesus acknowledges the authority, the function, and the demands of the secular state, even when it's ruled by a person who's pretending to be God. As a matter of fact, when he dies, do you know who takes over? Caligula. They don't argue about same-sex marriage. They don't argue about polygamy. His nephew, Caligula, will march into the Roman Senate, and he will have a priest conduct a ceremony where he gets married to his horse. I know you're thinking, what? But you see, that's what happens when there are no boundaries, when there are no borders, when a person claims supreme right. Caligula will claim that he can do whatever he wants to whomever he wants under whatever circumstances that that merits. He would have loved what Miss Piggy had to say in California when she was asked about same sex marriage. Miss Piggy, what do you believe about marriage? And Miss Piggy said, I believe it should be between one pig and one frog. I don't, I don't even know why I said that either. <laughs> one Bible writer says, God, too, has a legitimate authority. Look what it says at the end of verse 17. And to God, the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So let's ask the question. What belongs to God? Does your mind belong to God? Does your soul belong to God? Do your emotions and affections belong to God? Does your existence do you genuinely legitimately owe your existence to God? The very fact that you have lungs and a brain, the very fact that you exist, the very fact that you're capable of friendship and relationship and freedom are all of those things given by God. And now I want you to think about this in the book of Genesis. It says that human beings are made in the image and the likeness of God. In what way? With two eyes, an Italian nose, and a great big Jay Leno chin? Or does the Bible mean when it says that we are made in the imago Dei, in the image of God, does that mean that we, like God, enjoy at least some of the attributes of God? We have existence. We have personality. We have will. We have affection. We're capable of friendship and relationship. The theologians refer to this as the communicable attributes. There are things that we have in common with God, and there are things that we do not have in common with God, like self-existence and omniscience and omnipotence. But there are certain things that we do have in common with God. And so now when we ask the question, what belongs to Caesar and we give it to him, and then we look at his image and we look at the image that's on the coin, whose image is he made in? He's made in the image of God. Does Caesar have an obligation to give to God what belongs to God? I think so. Now, we have something very interesting. McKenna writes... God, too, has a legitimate authority, function and demand, which defines his kingdom. Here, the similarity with Caesar stops. God's authority is sovereign. His function is redemption. His demand is a tribute of total obedience to the will. No doubt remains about the responsibility of the religionists such as the Pharisees, in failing to meet these conditions. Someplace in their search for righteousness, they usurped God's sovereignty. They narrowed his redemption. They limited their obedience. And so. Guess what? Jesus is in effect saying, are the Pharisees giving to God what belongs to God? Are the Herodians giving to God what belongs to God? And all of this prompts the question. Have I done exactly the same thing? Have I limited God's sovereignty in my life? Have I narrowed his redemption? Have I limited my obedience? And guess what? You have limited God's sovereignty in your life if, for whatever reason, you still retain the right to live your life any way that you'd see fit. Let's just be honest. Because if God says to you, I love you, and I want to forgive you, and I want to have friendship with you, and I want to have a relationship with you, the moment that you say no, you're limiting his sovereignty. Have I narrowed his redemption? Well, I think there's lots of ways that you can get to heaven. I think that God's narrow way Is a little too narrow. The gates a little too straight. The paths a little too exclusive. But Jesus will make the amazing statement that he is the way and the truth and the life. Who made Caesar? Caesar's created in the image and the likeness of God. The Bible teaches that all human beings bear the image of God. And so there is within the throne of heaven the expectation that a human heart will understand that its desire to do what's right instead of what's wrong. To know God has been placed inside of their heart by God and that there is a reason why we are the way that we are. In his book, The Last, Twilight's Last Gleaming, Dr. Robert Jeffers has a title, a chapter entitled, How Should a Christian Vote? And both liberals and conservatives balk at the chapter heading. The chapter begins with the sentence, politics. The word alone can produce a bitter aftertaste, unquote. And he's right. But his insight on how to select a candidate is right on. He asked the question, is the candidate a Christian? But then he reminds the reader that being a Christian doesn't automatically qualify someone for office. What if both candidates claim to be Christians? What if neither candidate claims to be Christian? And by the way, does being a Christian automatically qualify a person for an office? By the way, if your wife, if your husband needed open heart surgery and one is a Christian and the other one is an unbeliever and the Christian has no experience opening people's hearts and the non-Christian has done 500 open heart surgeries. Which one are you going to pick? Well, I'm going to go with the Christian. I don't think you are. The second question that he asks is how would a candidate's faith impact his or her policies? And the only way to answer that question is to ask the candidate that question. Do your deeply held religious beliefs inform your decisions about public policy, economic policy, political policies, economic policies, moral policies? He then asks the question, do these policies align with the Bible? And the last question he asks is, how does the candidate view the Constitution? Do you know what? It is not my job to tell you how to vote. But I think I can say with complete confidence that you should vote. You see, if you're an American, your voice is your vote. William MacDonald writes, quote, The believer is obligated to obey and support the government under which he lives. He is not to speak evil of his rulers or work for the overthrow of the government. He is to pay taxes and pray for those in authority. If he's called upon to do anything that would violate his higher loyalty to Christ, then he is to refuse and to bear the punishment. The claims of God must come first. In upholding those claims, the Christian should always maintain a good testimony before the the world, we are citizens of two places. We live here and we live there. It was Daniel Webster who said we are good citizens because we're good Christians. The problem with our political system, the American tax system has created more liars than golf. (laughs) By the way, golf's created a lot of liars. But even golfers have to give a nod to the American tax system. Caesar has a legitimate realm, legitimate claims. God has a legitimate realm and legitimate claims. The realms of Caesar and God must not be confused, but also the presence of conflict in God's kingdom versus Caesar's kingdom means we yield to God. Redemption takes precedence over government. Expedience and allegiance to God takes precedence over secular citizenship. McKenna writes, quote, if Caesar must be worshipped, If redemptive witness must be forfeited for peace, if the will of the state is imposed over the will of God, the believers must say, like they did in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, we ought to obey God rather than men. This is the same thing that the midwives in the time of Moses, when the Pharaoh insisted that the midwives kill all of the male children. And they said, no, we won't do it. McKenna writes, both Caesar and God, like justice and mercy, are compatible from his eternal viewpoint if they stay within the boundaries of his sovereign authority, his redemptive purpose and his holy will. The state has a requirement to stay within the boundaries of God's sovereign authority. Because let me make this abundantly clear to you. Marriage exists because God created marriage. The state exists because God created the state. The family exists because God created the family. And so. In the not too distant future, the boundaries will be set. The purposes will be drawn. And each and every one of us are going to have to answer a question Can I do this according to God's will? Can I participate in this according to God's plan and God's purposes? The answer of Jesus is shocking and surprising to both the liberal and the conservative. When both liberal and conservative have to concede that Jesus Christ is the Lord. But I got to stop. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you will give us wisdom as men and women Lord, we pray that we would begin to understand about what constitutes the legitimate realm and the legitimate claims of government. What constitutes the legitimate realm and the legitimate claims of God? Lord, when that becomes confusing, what choices and decisions are we supposed to make? But Lord, I pray that you will give each man and each woman a profound sense of mercy and a profound sense of grace and a profound sense of wisdom. As they have to pray through the difficult issues. As they have to look to you for answers and wisdom. And Heavenly Father, I pray that each Christian would vote according to their conscience. Consistent with the word of God and the will of God. In Jesus' name, Amen.